Okay, let's go ahead and get started if we can. <clears throat> want to welcome you to our nine o'clock Bible study hour. We're continuing our look at, <clears throat> excuse me, what lies ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. And we're going to be getting into for the next few weeks a section of end times Bible study that really excites me. It's uh, the study of the tribulation. And the reason it excites me is because the tribulation, even though it's only seven years, as we're going to talk about, there is so much packed into that seven-year period. And the significance of it is really profound. When you really understand God's plan of the ages, when you understand God's justice, His wrath, all of the things that the Bible talks about, really from Genesis to Revelation, they all sort of come together in this final seven-year lead-up <clears throat> excuse me, to the return of Christ. So I wanted to mention, you know, we've been talking on Wednesday nights about what in the world is going on and how the current events today are setting the stage for end times prophecy. Well, what we mean when we talk about that is setting the stage for the tribulation. In other words, uh, as we look at the landscape and we look at what in the world is going on around us, we've been talking about you know, the World Economic Forum and the Great Satanic Reset the last couple of weeks, uh, and we talk about how that is setting the stage, signs of the times for the future end times prophecy. What we mean is the next event that's going to happen is the blessed hope, the rapture of the church to rescue us before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and then the Bible tells us we shift right into this seven-year uh, period called uh, the Tribulation. Now, if you've been following along in, in uh, my book, What Lies Ahead, this is chapters 12 and 14, and uh, we kind of condense it down in there and just cover it point by point. We're going to take our time and go through the events of the Tribulation much more slowly uh, because we can uh, here in our 9 o'clock hour, and I hope you'll feel free to ask questions and, and so forth. Uh, but what we're talking about is, again, this seven-year period. So if you look at uh, my end times chart, which we've referenced many times over the last uh, several months, uh, you can see uh, the church age there over there on the far left, which is where we are today. Then, of course, God bursts on the scene with the rapture, which is the next great prophetic event to which the, the world looks forward. And uh, that starts the clock ticking then on his end times plan. And then there's some length of time, we can't say for sure how much time there is between the rapture and the official beginning or commencement of the tribulation period, but there has to be some time because the rapture ends the church age and then a separate event, the signing of the peace treaty according to Daniel 9.27, is what starts the clock ticking on the tribulation. Since those are two separate events, they must necessarily be separated by some length of time. Uh, most uh, scholars say it's anywhere from a matter of months to some people say even could be years. My, I'm in the sort of a few months type category. Um, but what we're dealing with starting uh, this week is this period of time right here uh, that covers that the next seven years leading up to the return of Christ and the establishment at long last of his messianic kingdom. You'll notice on the chart there that the, the kingdom, which we'll get to that down the road as well, lots of wonderful descriptions in the Bible of what life will be like on earth in, in that kingdom age. But the first thousand years of that kingdom are what we call the millennium, 
which are the first thousand years on this current earth as we know it. Of course, it will be changed quite a bit by then because of all of the devastation that takes place during the tribulation, as we're going to discuss. Uh, but it's still on this earth. But after the thousand years, the Bible says God destroys this old sin-stricken earth under the curse of sin and recreates it in sinless perfection. And the, ki the kingdom thus continues on in perpetuity in a timeless eternity. And the Bible speaks of that as uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Sometimes you'll hear it called the eternal state. But we're focusing on what's in yellow uh, there. And, uh, you know, as I was reviewing this and um, kind of creating a new, some new slides to kind of go through it in a fresh way, I really got excited, as I usually do when I think about the tribulation, because, again, it is the, the culmination of all of the injustices of life sort of come to a head right here in this seven-year period where the wrath of God is poured out upon the sinfulness of mankind. And it's important for us to understand the tribulation, even though we will be rescued before the start of the tribulation, uh, for several reasons. First of all, because it's part of the whole counsel of God, and we should know all that the Bible has for us. But also, because the things that happen there uh, really are the fulfillment of, of many prophecies, and they sort of help things make sense from a big picture standpoint. You know, right now when so much seems unfair and in, unjust and um, it just seems like the, the innocent are often suffering and punished and in many cases the evil satanic people are just running amok, uh, this period of time that we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks sort of settles the score. And it reminds us that God can be trusted. It also, we see in the tribulation period, the, uh, the uh, cosmic struggle come to the forefront in pure visible form for everyone to see between Satan and God. Right now, we know in the present age from passages like Ephesians 6 that Satan is hard at work behind the scenes. Uh, we know there is a Luciferian conspiracy in which Satan, who's trying to take over this world, is conspiring with demons and human agents to try to usher in his globalist agenda. We've talked a lot about that uh, in other settings. We talked about it in my Spirit of the Antichrist series last fall, and we talked about it, we are talking about it on Wednesday nights now in the uh, What in the World is Going On series. But still, it's, it's even though we see manifestations of it, the real spiritual battle is an unseen one. It's hidden in the spiritual realm. We don't see, at least routinely, manifestations of the demonic aspect of this battle. We don't see God's angels doing battle with Satan's demons and trying to, uh, in some cases, defending us because God's not ready to move into the last phase. And uh, we, we don't see all of that, at least routinely. There are glimpses of it, and frankly, the whole premise of my spirit of the Antichrist uh, series that we did last fall was to say that we are beginning to see more and more and more an uptick in the manifestations of the spiritual uh, battle because uh, the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work, the Bible tells us. But still, it will pale in comparison to what's going to take place during uh, this uh, tribulation period. Uh, we're going to see unbelievable cosmic signs and wonders and manifestations of things uh, happening. And it, it, it really helps us sort of understand uh, what, what we're heading into. So in the big picture, 
you know, the end times, which is what this series is all about. We're calling it What Lies Ahead. Uh, is about 16% of biblical prophecy. We've talked a lot about that, how roughly one-third of the Bible is prophetic. Half of that has not yet been fulfilled. It relates to the end times. And so the, uh, the end times, again, starts with the rapture and goes all the way through till we get to the new heavens and the new earth. And obviously this chart that you see on the screen is not drawn to scale, because so far the church age has been 2,000 years, and what I've got highlighted in yellow constitutes just a seven-year period. But the reason for that is we have so much detail in God's Word about that seven-year period. Now, what we're going to do today is spend a lot of time in the text examining key passages uh, just introducing them that talk about or refer to the tribulation period. Uh, and I, I'm doing that because I want you to see how pervasive it is throughout God's Word. Many people downplay the events of the tribulation because they think it's a description of the present age, and they don't see a literal seven-year tribulation. They think the tribulation is just sort of the last part of the church age, and they don't make a distinction, as the Bible does, between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. And so because of that confusion, uh, they, they really miss the, the, the key component, sort of the, the kickoff, if you will, to the end times. I mean, it, you know, it comes on the scene, first of all, with the mystery of the rapture and the sudden disappearance of all believers from the present age off the earth. We're caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, and that's going to, of course, cause panic and chaos. Uh, if you've not watched it, I encourage you to go to the Not By Works uh, website uh, and watch uh, a video that we did a couple of years ago called One Minute After the Rapture. It's a full-length 90-minute video, and I talk about 10 things that will be true uh, for those left behind one minute after the rapture and seven things that will be true for those caught up to meet the Lord in the air one minute after the rapture. And it's just a comprehensive uh, overview of that. But what, that, what I discuss in that DVD and what God's Word tells us is that the rapture sort of uh, jolts the world into uh, chaos. And then it is soon after that that the Antichrist rises to power, signs the peace treaty, and becomes the global dictator, the global tyrant, uh, working at the behest of Satan. We know this from Second uh, Thessalonians 2. And uh, he's the one world leader. So we've been talking a lot about how the stage is being set for that now. And uh, on Wednesday nights, I hope you'll watch those videos or come if you can or live stream it if you can at 6 o'clock Mountain Time. But we talked about how Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum is really right now in the driver's seat. All of the evil that's being perpetrated on planet Earth kind of has some connection directly or indirectly to that satanic organization. And, uh, so, and I've made that case already after just two uh, uh, videos in that series, two pre presentations in that series. And we've got a lot more coming uh, this Wednesday. So we, we're not saying that Klaus Schwab is the Antichrist, but we do know Satan has a candidate already in mind because he doesn't know the timetable of God. And God may decide that today's the day. We all, may all meet the Lord in the air this afternoon, right? Amen. How many of you would be okay with that? I'd, I'd be okay with that. Um, and if that happens, then Satan's ready. He, he's ready. He's got his guy on standby, and, and boom, things will begin to happen uh, rather quickly. Um, 
So uh, let's kind of dive in, and I want to spend some time first in the Old Testament and show you how uh, pervasive, again, as I said, this topic, this important seven-year period is in the Old Testament. So there are, by my count, at least 20 different Old Testament designations. Now, I'm not talking about references because there are you know, hundreds of passages that touch on the tribulation, but all of them use at least one of these 20 different terms. So think of these as synonyms for this thing that we're calling the tribulation. That's one of the terms in the Bible that is called, that this seven-year period is called in the Old and New Testament, as we shall see. So all of these designations relate to this seven-year period. You see a few of them on the screen already, and I think Anne joked with, with me one time about how often when I talk about the tribulation, I tend to rattle off several different uh, uh, synonyms for it, such as time of Jacob's trouble, day of the Lord's wrath, great day of the Lord's wrath, the overflowing scourge, the 70th week of Daniel, the day of the Lord, and so forth. And that's just because, you know, I've studied this so much, I, 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 in my mind they all sort of conflate together because they all have slightly different nuances that speak of this powerful time of God's judgment. Uh, one more thing I want to mention by way of introduction before we start looking at these Old Testament designations is that another uh, unique thing about the tribulation is it's all about judgment leading up to the final moment when Christ comes back with a sword proceeding out of his mouth to, to judge the nations, to rule the nations, to, to tread the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. It's all about judgment. In contrast, the, the rapture is all about blessing. That's why all the passages that we see that talk about the rapture speak of it as comforting, hopeful, blessed hope. We eagerly wait for it. Um, I don't know that I would eagerly wait for someone who's going to come and smite the nations and tread the winepress of the wrath and fury of Almighty God. And I mean, that, that's not something hopeful. That's something that you think, wow, this is dreadful. And that's the picture we're going to get of the tribulation period because it's all leading up to that return of the Messiah. But the rapture is not so. The rapture is indeed a blessed hope. It's something that we are to comfort one another with because as the world gets worse and worse and we face more and more suffering and persecution, and by the way, in America, we may find ourselves facing persecution like we've never faced before if the Lord tarries His coming. But in the midst of that, before the day of the Lord's wrath, which is a term that refers to that seven-year period, God's going to rescue us, and that's blessing. That's, that's something to look forward to. And that's the reason we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, right? Uh, so as we get into these Old Testament designations, each one of these kind of has a little bit of a different uh, nuance, but they all refer to the same thing. One of the biggest ones is birth pangs. Now this is very significant uh, because it has uh, a visual picture that, uh, that you know, we can think of, right? Obviously, especially women who've given birth, but or even if you you know you haven't given birth, or you're a man, which if you're a man, so far you haven't given birth, though they're working on it uh, in this transhumanist culture, like we've talked about, uh, uh, you still have some idea of what this is talking about. Now, in, I want to go to uh, an Old Testament passage first that talks about the birth pangs. For example, in Micah. 4.10, be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, talking about Israel. You'll notice all of these references in the Old Testament 
relate to Israel. The church did not exist yet. The church is a mystery that was not unveiled until you get to the New Testament. So the, the 70th week of Daniel, this seven-year period, is exclusively Jewish in nature. The church has no part in it. And we're going to talk more about that as we go through this. But he says, like a woman in birth pangs. So when the birth pangs come on, you know what is near, which is what? The birth, right? That's why they're called birth pangs, right? And so um, what we see today, and this is very important, are not the birth pangs. Because the birth pangs is a technical term in Scripture that always refers to this seven-year tribulation. We see it again, for example, in Isaiah. The prophet says, the 8th century prophet, as with a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs when she draws near the time of her delivery, so we have been in your sight, O Lord. So Israel has been facing increasing suffering as prophesied in Scripture. You go all the way back to uh, Egypt and and then Babylon and Assyria and Medo-Persia and Rome. And in the end times, the revived Roman Empire, the what Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles, where, where Jerusalem and Israel are under Gentile domination. But as it gets near the end, those pangs are going to intensify. You know, sometimes uh, women who are expecting have Braxton Hicks contractions, right? They're contractions, but they're not, they're, they're not really signaling imminency and you know a lot of times you'll go to the hospital and they'll send you back home they'll say oh false alarm right so there are a lot of things happening and setting the stage for the return of Christ but when these birth pangs start it will be a time of unbelievable anguish for Israel and for the world in fact as we're going to see when we get into the details of the tribulation at the midpoint the three and a half year mark the antichrist and his demonic army uh, focuses his evil and his persecution on the Jews in particular, on Israel. And that's the reason Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, when you get to that point, you need to head for the hills and, and watch out. So that's the idea behind birth pangs. Now, I want, even though we're talking about Old Testament uh, definitions here, I want to go to the New Testament because we just finished talking about a... Uh, uh, the uh, period, a portion of scripture called the Olivet Discourse. We spent, I think it was 10 weeks uh, dissecting uh, that key passage from Matthew 24 and 25, also recorded in Mark 13 and uh, Luke uh, 21. Uh, and that passage begins in Matthew 24 with Jesus saying this, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now I'm using the NASB here, even though I normally use the New King James, because for some reason, the New King James in this verse, in contrast to all other English translations, uses the beginning of sorrows. But the Greek word there, translated sorrows, or in most cases birth pangs, is the word odin. And guess what it means? It can only mean one thing. It's not one, like one of these complicated Greek words, and we have them in English too, that have multiple meanings. It means one thing, birth pains. I have no idea why the King James... Uh, translation chose to translate it sorrows, but it's talking about birth pains. It's also used, the same word Odin is used by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, another passage talking about the tribulation, when he says, when they say peace, safety, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. What's he talking about there? Well, 
at the beginning of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to sign what kind of treaty? We've talked about it. Peace. A peace treaty, right. Because after the chaos that engulfs the world following the rapture, there's going to be massive military maneuvers. People are going to try, evil regimes are going to try to capitalize on the chaos. Uh, they may have all kinds of excuses that, you know, people that are left behind that are unbelievers are going to hear some crazy deception. That's one of the things I talk about in one minute after the rapture. They may very well blame it on an alien invasion or alien abduction. Who knows what they're going to do, but it'll be a time of chaos. And I believe it's during that time, let me go back to our chart, during this preparation time after the rapture but before the official start of the tribulation that a northern alliance is going to form uh, Russia and they're going to try to come against the land of Israel and in the meantime uh, according to Daniel 11 a western alliance will form and that western alliance will come in to try to defend Israel and uh, we read in, about this in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and that a battle is going to be supernaturally one by Israel. Israel is going to be protected divinely by God. Uh, and I've talked about this before, but if you've ever watched the, the uh, movie uh, series of Left Behind, many of you have read the books, uh, but the movie uh, depiction of this particular event called the Battle of Gog and Magog, even though they put it in a different time slot that I don't agree with, but the depiction of what actually happens uh, is very accurate towards scripture it's you know planes dropping out of the sky inexplicably and clearly God comes to the defense of Israel and protects them but what happens is uh, that the Western Alliance takes credit for it and says look we defended Israel we solved this you know World War three or whatever they're calling it at that point and the leader of that Western Alliance is the man who then is catapulted to world fame and becomes the Antichrist and he solves this global conflagration by orchestrating a peace treaty. So now let's go back to what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians uh, uh, 5. So everyone's saying peace and safety, but what happens? Well, the first three and a half years are relatively peaceful for Israel in the sense that, uh, you know, they're not being attacked. Uh, let me see if I have that on here. Yeah, you notice I have three and a half years of protection. Uh, they're, they're kind of under the treaty. The Antichrist hasn't turned his uh, hatred and destruction upon them yet. But boy, at the midpoint, those labor pains begin to really intensify. And you know that the coming of Christ is near. And so that's the idea here behind birth pangs. So when we see the phrase birth pangs in Matthew 24, and if you want to just turn there to look at the context, we... Can't seem to get away from the Olivet Discourse because we spent 10 weeks on it and now here we are back in it. But I love the Olivet Discourse. We do, by the way, have an eight-disc DVD series comprehensively <laughs> covering the, uh, the Olivet Discourse. But if you look at when the Olivet Discourse begins, by the way, just in case people that weren't with us for the last few weeks, by Olivet Discourse, that's just the title given to Jesus' sermon that he preached from the top of Mount Olives the day before he was betrayed in the garden, arrested, tried, and crucified. So this was Wednesday night of Passion Week. And so the disciples wanted to know what will be the sign of your coming? When are you going to return and usher in the kingdom age? And he begins in verse 4, Take heed that no one deceives you. Remember, deception is going to reach unprecedented heights during the tribulation period. For many will come, future tense, in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. 
and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And then here's the key verse, verse 8. All these things are the beginning of birth pangs. <laughs> so he's talking about the tribulation period. A lot of people read those first four verses and say, oh, we see these things happening today. And we do. Earthquakes, by the way, right now are unprecedented, happening at unprecedented rates all across the globe and at high levels uh, on the Richter scale. And, but that's not this. That's all setting the stage for what's going to happen during the tribulation period. The Bible doesn't tell us that the things Jesus describes and the things the rest of Scripture describes as happening during the tribulation will only happen during the tribulation. It's just they're going to intensify. They're going to be characteristic of that age. We also see some of those things happening now. There, you know, For this to be, a lot, a lot of people will point to this sign, particularly say verse 7, and say, you know, wars and rumors of wars. And then they'll put up on the screen a bunch of examples of wars going on around the world. And they'll say, see, we must be getting close. There have been wars going on for 6,000 years of human history. That's nothing new. Uh, so those aren't necessarily saying that the end is near, but they're setting the stage. And as we get closer, this is what the whole point of the Spirit of the Antichrist series was, we can look around and we can see, well, if there's going to be massive earthquakes, Jesus describes them as earthquakes like you've never seen before on the earth, in the tribulation, and we're seeing an uptick in those in recent years, maybe we're getting closer. You always have to say maybe. We don't know for sure. It could be 100 years. Uh, but the point is, these birth pangs are not things that are happening in the church age. They're things that are going to happen during the period of the birth pangs, which is the seven-year tribulation. Jesus says these are the beginning of those birth pangs. Everybody with me? All right, so that's the first designation. The next one that's pretty common in the Old Testament is the day of the Lord. Uh, the day of the Lord. You see this in many of the prophets, Obadiah, Amos, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, many of them. Here's one in Joel. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Okay, The day of the Lord. Now the day of the Lord is uh, a metaphor in the sense that it's not speaking about a 24-hour day, and context makes it clear. There are It's used in a variety of passages in the Old Testament in various contexts to, to refer to everything from the seven-year period, which is what it refers to here in Joel, to the exact moment when the Messiah comes back, to even local historic judgments that God has brought on his people Israel in, in times past. So at the broadest level, the day of the Lord is a time of God's judgment. It's always uh, judgment. Um, context has to determine meaning, and we find that often uh, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament most frequently, in fact, refers to this seven-year period of the outpouring of God's wrath. Joel says, For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Zechariah says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. This is all talking about that tribulation period. And then we also see it referred to as the great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, we see this one time in Malachi 4-5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before co the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So remember the two witnesses in Revelation? One of them is going to be Elijah. Uh, and it's uh, some translations say terrible. The New King James here says dreadful, but it's going to be a dreadful and great day. Uh, then we see <clears throat> the, one of my favorite designations of it 
And we see this especially in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. And that, of course, is the day of the Lord's wrath. Zephaniah the prophet, that was his favorite term to describe this seven-year period. That day is a day of wrath. <clears throat> it's God's anger. Uh, in verse 18, he says, uh, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. And if you go back, <clears throat> excuse me, if you go back to our chart, in the coming weeks, we're going to get to these tribulation judgments that you see at the bottom of the screen. Those are taken straight from Revelation chapters 6 to 18. They are uh, a series of judgments. The first seven are unveiled as seals. And if you remember the <coughs> flow of the argument in Revelation, the first three chapters are Jesus literally writing letters to the church. Well, the first chapter is kind of an introduction, uh, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then chapters 2 and 3 are letters to historic churches in the late first century, well, giving mostly commendation and, and rebuke. And then <coughs> you don't get to the tribulation, <coughs> excuse me, until you get to chapter 6. So what happens in chapters 4 and 5? Well, <coughs> chapters 4 and 5 are beautiful section of revelation excuse me i'm uh <clears throat> having trouble talking but uh and if anybody says amen i'll get my feelings hurt <laughs> but uh <clears throat> anyway i uh in chapters four to five we see what we call a theodicy which is a sort of a justification for the wrath that is about to be unfurled in other words who has the right who has the authority to open the seals of God's judgment? And then the book of Revelation tells us, the Lamb, He is worthy, because He was slain before the foundation of the world. So, and then, after establishing that God has the right to judge, uh, He then, we see in Revelation chapter 6 to 18, the unfolding of these judgments. And we're going to come back at a, at a later point in this series and we're going to look at each one of these judgments in detail and see how it affects the earth during this seven-year period of time. In fact, these judgments actually serve as a roadmap, if you will, for that seven-year period. But the first seven <coughs> are seals. When you get to that seventh seal, as I tried to indicate here on this diagram, he, he opens the seventh seal, and within it are seven more judgments. Okay, so then you start announcing those judgments. How are they announced? With trumpets, right? So you got seven trumpet judgments. And when the seventh trumpet blows, it has, guess what? Seven more judgments. And these are called bowls. Uh, each one is a bowl full of wrath and judgment. And, uh, and then uh, in the old King James, I think, called them vials. V-I-A-L-S, a bowl or a vial. And each one is a judgment. Now, this is not drawn to scale. But those final seven there, the bold judgments, all occur in conjunction with the Battle of Armageddon at the very end of the uh, tribulation, right when Christ comes back, and they kind of relate to the preparation for that uh, campaign. But that's what we're talking about uh, when we talk about the wrath of God and uh, the day of the Lord's wrath, that, that He's going to pour out His judgment on mankind during that time. Now, as we've talked about, there will be an untold number of people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language after the rapture who get saved during the tribulation. They place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins. They're saved. Uh, many of them will be 
uh, martyred. Um, by the way, was it last week that you asked the question about the the uh, mark of the beast and stuff? And so I don't remember if we I don't think we have that captured anywhere. So I want to say that there was a question that kind of stumped me last week, and it shouldn't have stumped me. But sometimes my brain, the way the questions are asked, I kind of come at it from a different way and then I, I missed the obvious and that was the case. So if, if you watch last week's video, I think it was Jeff that asked as in regard to the mark of the beast, what if a Christian refuses the mark of the beast, will they forcibly hold them down and forcibly inject them or, or whatever it is? And I got to thinking, well, I, I, I haven't really thought of it. Well, it was an obvious answer. And by the way, my kids were the ones that pointed it out. They've heard me speak enough. They realized uh, they could have answered the question better than I could. They came right up to me afterwards last week and pointed out, well, the fact of the matter is believers in the tribulation, those that got saved after the rapture, will only have two choices, okay? You, you, you either, you know, take the mark of the beast or you get beheaded. And a believer's not going to take the mark of the beast, the Bible tells us, so really their only eventuality is beheading. There will not be forced injections. I should say it this way. When it comes time for the mark of the beast to be rolled out at the midpoint of the tribulation, everyone on earth either has one of two options. You take it or you're killed. Okay. So believers will be beheaded. And, uh, and I have a good friend that uh, has, uh, I shouldn't say good friend, I've worked with him a few times. I would say more of an acquaintance, but he knows me, I know him, Shareem Hadian. He's been on my radio show, and he has a whole DVD that he does on beheadings. He's a converted Muslim, a born-again Christian, and he talks about beheadings and how that has been used to persecute Christians for centuries, and, and it will be used in the tribulation. So, so that was the answer to that question. But it's going to be a time of unprecedented wrath. Uh, the next three we'll look at uh, together. All of these are also from this same verse in uh, Zephaniah. So we've seen it's, it's a time of birth pangs. It's the day of the Lord, meaning the day of the Lord's judgment. It's the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's a day of wrath, and then we see it called the day of the Lord's wrath. And we see it a day of trouble and distress, and, and all those other things. Let me just mention them. Uh, devastation and desolation, day of darkness and gloom. All of these from Zephaniah chapter uh, 1. Uh, so here's trouble and distress, desolation and devastation, darkness and gloominess. Uh, also, Joel uses the same Hebrew phrase to refer to this seven-year period, a day of darkness and gloominess. I mean, are you beginning to get the picture of the overall nature of this seven-year period this is not going to be a happy time it's going to be a devastating time now um, this is where not to get too far astray here but going back to the Olivet Discourse um, remember Jesus made the analogy after explaining all the signs that would happen to, to let people know hey my coming is near then he gets into some analogies and parables where he's encouraging that future generation to be ready and he, and he says it, that that day will kind of be like the days of Noah, but he tells us in what way it'll be like the days of Noah. He doesn't just say it'll be like the days of Noah and leave us wondering. He specifically says that just as in the days of Noah, people ignored the warning and were caught off guard, so too during the tribulation period, people will ignore the warning and be caught off guard. Um, he, he describes life in Noah's day, uh, as you know, they were eating and drinking and giving in marriage. But his point wasn't that that's what we're going to be doing now or during the tribulation period. His point was that they were going about life without paying attention to Noah's warning. In the same way, Jesus is sounding a warning 
And yet there will be many who are deceived. That's the reason he repeatedly says, don't be deceived, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. And they'll miss the warning and be caught up uh, in the judgment. But because of that phrase, many people have taken it and run with it, as in the days of Noah. And they have said, well, you know, it, it, it can't be, you know, uh, too devastating. Or it can't, you know, life has to have some sense of normalcy. Uh, it won't. It'll be a new normal, for sure. We've talked about that phrase as the World Economic Forum is trying to usher in a new normal. Uh, it'll have a sense of a normal in its own way, but it's going to be devastating. It won't be like it is today, where you just you know, can go to work, go to school, you go to the supermarket, you have a picnic, you go on vacation, this and that. That's not what it's going to be like. People are going to be fighting for survival. Uh, it'll be a one-world global system. Uh, at some point in, at, toward the middle, they're going to have to take the mark in order to buy or sell. They're going to be registered and tracked globally. They're going to be persecuted. It's going to be the worst kind of uh, oppressive, tyrannical regime ever on planet Earth, and there have been many. Um, and, uh, and yet, in spite of that, people, Jesus is saying, will still be deceived and miss uh, his warning. Uh, so it's not going to be a happy time. Don't misunderstand Jesus' analogy as saying that somehow things will be normal. Uh, uh, it, it's, it, that's not what he was talking about. And by the way, it's because of that misunderstanding that people think that analogy is referring to the present age and that you know it can't be referring to the tribulation. And, and, but the fact of the matter is, even in the present age, it's quite possible things won't be normal the way we're used to them if, if the Lord tarries is coming much longer. And it's not normal right now, as we've talked about, we're going to talk about Wednesday, in places like China. I mean, you don't believe anything you hear uh, coming out of China. I heard one uh, underground guy, he's actually in, he's in another country, but he's, he's Chinese, and he, he defected, and now he's, he's out kind of sounding the alarm about what's going on in China. And he said, don't ever listen to anything that the communist Chinese media puts out. It's all bold-faced lies. If you want to really know what's going on, you got to look at you know, social media outside of China because they control the social media in China. We're going to talk about the social credit score that they've implemented and that they're trying to implement here on Wednesday. But, uh, you know, liars lie. That's just what liars do. So once you've determined someone is a liar, don't listen to them. Why would you keep listening to liars? I just don't understand that. And yet that's what everybody does here in America with the mainstream uh, narrative. But we're going to talk more about that on Wednesday. So I will quickly move on before I get too far into that. Uh, it's uh, a day of clouds, going back to Zephaniah 1.15 again, uh, and thick darkness, that same passage. These are some pretty descriptive terms. Joel also uses that. Joel's a 6th century prophet. Um, in uh, early 6th century, and he says, uh, you know, a time of clouds and thick darkness. And then here's one that uh, gets a lot of uh, airtime in Scripture, and that is the day of vengeance. The day of vengeance. Isaiah the prophet, that 8th century B.C. prophet, said, For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. So all of those, you know, millions of Jews that were slaughtered, all of those oppressive regimes that have dominated the land, the Holy Land, for all these years. Uh, at the time that this is going to come to fulfillment, it will be the revived Roman Empire and the Antichrist sitting at the helm of that. God will have his vengeance. 
Uh, they will not go unchecked. Famous passage in Isaiah 61 that Jesus quotes at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4 is Isaiah 61. And the first part of it, which is the only part that Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 4, refers to his first advent and his coming as the suffering servant and the Savior. But he goes on to say, at some point, I'm going to preside over the day of the vengeance of our God. And that's when he comes back at the culmination of the tribulation to tread the winepress of the wrath and fury of Almighty God. So it's a day of God's vengeance, and that's why it should be comforting to us to read this in Scripture. Otherwise, we're left wondering, can God be trusted? Is he really faithful? Is he really our defender and protector? Is he going to come to our defense and our rescue? Or is he going to let evil win out? He doesn't let evil win out. And that's why you need to understand end times prophecy and, and, and the tribulation period in particular. Uh, and then here's one you've heard me use a lot, the time of Jacob's trouble. The time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, that's what Jeremiah the prophet calls it. Now, of course, if you know your Old Testament history, uh, you had the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed to what? Israel. And, and his 12 sons, most of them anyway, became the 12 tribes of Israel. When they entered, the Can entered into Canaan and they divided up the land, they had uh, the 12 sons. I think actually 10 of them. And then you had um, Joseph's had two sons that were, he didn't have a tribe himself. And then you had, uh, I think Levi was the priesthood. So anyway, it was, I used to be able to name them, but it was, a, let's see if we can name them. And if I get stumped, you help me. The 12 sons of Jacob or Israel. Simeon, Judah, Benjamin, Dan, Issachar, Zebulon, uh, Naphtali, uh, Gad, Reuben, good. Joseph, we mentioned. Uh, did I say Levi? That was one of Joseph's sons, uh, Levi. Well, we got 11 of them. Asher. Asher. Asher, that's it. Asher. There you go. Very nice. All right. So, a bonus for everyone here. Extra 100 years in heaven. Okay. Good. Um, so, let's do a couple more, and then we'll take a break for questions and, and then get ready for our service to follow. Now, this one's a good one, the day of trumpet and alarm. So that's a military analogy. Obviously, when you see an enemy coming in, in the normal parlance of that phrase, you sound the alarm. We see lots of examples in the Old Testament of uh, both Israel and the other uh, pagan nations around them involved in conflicts, and they would sound the trumpet, sound the alarm, right? Well, in this sense, this is an impending judgment. Obviously, it's not an enemy. God's not an enemy, but to those unbelievers... Uh, and Satanists, he's an enemy for sure. And uh, so it's described as a day of trumpet and alarm. So we'll, we'll pause it there because we've got about three minutes left, and I want to see if you have any questions or comments. Uh, I know this is a lot of Scripture, but um, it's, it's always important to make sure that we see the biblical uh, 
characterization of something before we get into it. So we're going to get into the purposes of the tribulation. Then we're going to get into a blow-by-blow blow of what happens in it. We're going to get into all of that, but, but for now we're going to start by talking about designations. Yeah? So what did the, what did the Jews think that God was referring to in the Old Testament when they see these things? Since they don't believe that Christ has come yet, what do they believe today when it's being yeah. referred to? Well, it depends on the Jew. Uh, you know, there are Messianic Jews who understand the Bible and they're saved, but um, you know, most of the uh, unsaved political leaders in Israel uh, today, if you're talking about like the political, the nation of Israel today, uh, most of them are not only unsaved, but they're in part of the Luciferian conspiracy. I mean, if you watch what's going on in Israel today, it's the tip of the spear for the great satanic reset that Klaus Schwab is rolling out. But the average, the average Jew. But an average Jew, you know, genetically, the, the, uh, most of them understood that this as a reference to the coming of the Messiah. They just, as the New Testament tells us, missed him the first time around, crowned him with thorns instead. Uh, which was all part of God's plan. Remember, Isaiah talks about how they're going to stumble over the stumble over the uh, cornerstone or the stumbling rock, and so they missed it. Uh, presumably, there's people in both camps through the centuries, the last two thousand years. There are Jews who repented and understood, uh, like many of the early apostles, uh, and recognized they had crucified their Savior, and and they believed the gospel. There are others who don't, and so they still think this is referring to a future time when he's going to come back. Does that does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So they, you know, I think Jesus teaching at the Olivet Discourse is very instructive because it's talking directly to a Jewish people, and his re frequent references to not being deceived shows that even when it's happening before their very eyes, some still won't get it. So. Uh, there are some that don't get it today. So, yeah. Um, I, I didn't, it wasn't here for your Olivet Discourse uh, session, but the parable of the fig tree where you know that summer is near, you know these things are near. Can you talk a little bit about this generation will not pass away before these things happen? Yeah, so what he's saying here is, Having just given all the signs and, and given the answer to their question, what will, what will we look for to know that you're coming near? He then likens that to when you see a fig tree begin to sprout green leaves, ah, you know winter is ending, summer is near, right? You know, that's, what he, that's the word picture that he's painting. And then he goes on to say in the same way, the generation that sees all these signs that I've just described will be the generation that sees my return. So the, the simplest way to understand it, and I've written a whole 40-page actual journal article that was published in the Journal of Ministry and Theology years ago on this generation in Matthew 24. It's one of the most misunderstood passages really in all the Bible when it comes to you know, covenant theology and, and especially preterists and people like that. But it's, when he says this generation, it's the generation about whom he is speaking, not the generation to whom he is speaking. See, prophets always are speaking to a generation in real time but they weren't the ones that would see the fulfillment of it. It's the same thing we see again and again in the Bible. So in Isaiah 7, when Jesus says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a child, that 8th century B.C. Jewish generation didn't see that. So 
now sometimes there are what's called near prophecies where he's talking about something locally and, and he says this is going to happen. The Bible, God does through a prophet, and it happens. But most of prophecy and in all of end times prophecy, all of it, 100% of end times prophecy was given to a people in a historical setting, and we have the record of it in Scripture, but 100% of it won't happen till a future generation. So this generation will by no means pass away. The one about whom I've been speaking, the one that sees all these signs, will by no means pass away until they see my return. Okay, well, let's take a break. Um, and we, for those of you that are live streaming, you probably know by now the live stream will kick off 10.30, give or take five minutes, because uh, we only live stream the message. Uh, but for those of you here, uh, we will reconvene at 10 o'clock for the start of our service.